Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Some of the things that I try to emphasize in working with folks, especially predominantly in the U.S., is, um, you know, first off, really deepening our understanding of what has prevented us from engaging in action to begin with. So for a lot of people, maybe that might be fear. It could involve ridicule, right? It could involve, you know, anticipated backlash or persecution, which is real, especially when you're really rocking the boat or shaking things up. That's a very reasonable concern. Uh, And when we get out on the table, um, what, again, has already been someone's relationship with the changes they have and haven't made, the decisions that they have and haven't made in their lives, Um, We can move forward in a way that's informed by those deeply seated patterns. And so often they're intergenerational, right? So what are the habits that we've seen even within our families in terms of, right, maybe unrequited dreams um, or maybe people just kind of towing the party line and then presuming in their retirement they can volunteer and that's how you are a sort of productive or contributing member to society? Um, Or have you seen someone maybe in your family with vulnerability, really try to go all out to fulfill some sincere passion that they have? And then did you see them essentially get sort of censored for that? And if so, how has that informed um, your personal relationship with that risk taking and with that right embodiment of integrity? So I would first off just start off reminding folks, you know, you're always already doing a thing. What indeed is that thing? And what's the set of sort of patterns or habits that's informed why you're doing what you're doing now, especially if it diverges from a vision that you hold of something otherwise? I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Anjali, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually came across your story because you actually wrote in. And when I read the description of what you were up to, and I went and looked at your website and looked at everything else, I thought to myself, yeah, this is really, really interesting. And I definitely want to talk about it. But before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking you, where in the world did you grow up? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Mm, Great question. You know, I moved around quite a bit when I was younger. So I was Born behind the Orange Curtain in Orange County, California, actually, and lived there for a couple of years before moving to 
a rural area in Oklahoma for a couple of years, then back to Orange County, then to Sugarland, Texas for middle school in the heart of the Bible Belt, and then to New Delhi to the capital of India for my first half of high school, then back to Orange County for my last couple years of high school with a couple of summer stints on the southern rim of the Grand Canyon. So that's where I was raised. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so far as the impact that that had on my upbringing and who I've become, it really was profound on a number of fronts. For me, one of the things that has been most beautiful to be able to look back on around that is just what a sort of journey that experience set me on to actually really try to understand better how people vet intelligence and legitimacy. So many of those places, as I'm sure you might know quite well, or you could imagine, um, are really distinct in terms of the cosmologies and the worldviews and the politics and the cultures and those places. And so since I was exposed to them so deeply when I was a kid, still really formatively starting to make sense of the world. Um, it was just this incredible opportunity to not get too cozy in one worldview, but to really habituate being able to see strengths and the best in pretty incommensurate approaches to making meaning. Uh, and so I feel like that definitely could have had something to do with my ending up studying philosophy among other disciplines. Uh, and then also just really instilling a deep curiosity in me around how on earth people formulate identities in terms of who they are and how they perceive the world and their relationship in the world. Mm, Wow. So, I mean, you're of Indian descent, right? Mm -hmm. And so you've gone from Orange County, uh, where likely you're surrounded by some people like you, to Texas, which I I know because I've lived in Texas, Mm -hmm. uh, where there are no people like you, particularly in the Bible Belt, than to (laughs) India. I wonder, what worldviews did you notice in each culture uh, that really stood out to you? What narratives around uh, social codes and success did you gain from each culture? And what impact have those had on what you've done? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you can imagine starting off in Orange County, uh, the place has the reputation that it does, uh, because it's warranted, actually, (laughs) it's merited, even though, of course, there's a lot of heterogeneity in the place. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that really inspired me to learn about depth quite a lot, too, because, uh, just to keep it real, there's some vapidity in that space. Uh, and so, Certainly at the outset, seeing folks with so much material possession and wealth that were just empty inside um, really inspired me at the outset to realize, okay, not trying to be that guy in my life. Clearly, there's more to fulfillment and to meaning um, than just having money or material success. So I was able to learn that lesson at the outset through seeing so many folks that kind of, you know, did what their parents told them to do and were miserable accordingly. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then, you know, transitioning to the heart of the Bible Belt, uh, for sure, discrimination and not being Christian and not being white was a thing that I experienced. Uh, And I know that that in part uh, likely had something to do with my, for the rest of my life, being so committed to 
supporting the creation of spaces that are as deeply welcoming uh, and not just inclusive, but really honoring the strength of heterogeneity as possible. Uh, And so being someone that did have such an intimate experience when I was a kid of being ostracized, of being othered, um, definitely made me committed to the idea of, um, to the fullest extent reasonable, never trying to contribute to a space where anyone else might have that kind of experience. Uh, and then what a trip, right? Segwaying from a place that was so racist, <laughs> such as the, you know, the outskirts of Houston, um, where, you know, my community, Sugarland, was a third white, a third black, a third overwhelmingly Mexican. And then, you know, there was like a handful of us that were not black, white, or Mexican, and it was not cute. Uh, and so to segue from there to India, where most of my peers were Indian, uh, and to be in a place that was so nourishingly supportive of half of my family's culture uh, and spiritual traditions, uh, philosophical traditions, and to be connected to that and rooted to that so deeply as a kid, then to be tossed back into Orange County. Uh, It was a trip epistemologically for sure in terms of my meaning making, uh, but it just really allowed me to uh, not take any one of those approaches as a given or for granted, um, but to see, you know, the pros and the cons, so to speak, or the limitations and the benefits of all of those paradigms. Yeah. So tell me about your parents. I, I mean, you seem to have really kind of escaped the social programming that, uh, really embeds most Indian people's lives. Uh, I only know this because we probably have similar parents, but given that my dad is a professor and my sister is a doctor, so I can't help but wonder mm-hmm. I mean, what, what kinds of things did your parents tell you you should be doing with your life when you're growing up? Right. Uh, you know, I don't know that they actually, that I can recall, were super explicit the way that I know some of our parents are around, you know, saying you need to have this profession or something such as that. Um, So my father was a petroleum engineer for 76 for Union Oil, and he actually worked with the Taliban in the mid-90s when Unical was bidding for that contract, you might recall, to lay down an oil pipeline through Central Asia, down into South Asia. Uh, And so that was instructive for me because it was as a child that I started learning about the toxicity of petrocapitalism, essentially, and how problematic uh, extractive industries are more broadly. Uh, And so through that sort of cautionary tale, I was definitely inadvertently um, also just really observant around the way that folks in positions of power, such as, say, corporate executives, can really have a skewed sort of approach to being able to relate to people in a more balanced way. Um, So that definitely, almost by default, really attuned me to a yearning for emotional balance, emotional intelligence, striving for something that didn't really exist in my house. Uh, And, you know, it also just had me really curious around, you know, I mean, here's someone who was born as a colonial subject, right, into a British empire um, before they were kicked out, of course, of what became the current nation state of India when he was a kid. And then here he is getting hustled into being this native informant, right, for a neocolonial corporation, uh, that were unapologetically right committing atrocities against people in the planet. So it just really had me also reflecting since I was little on how it is that whether it's money, maybe it's prestige, 
perhaps its credentials could co-opt the life out of someone that had such an astounding work ethic and that was so intelligent. Um, so it definitely, you know, again, sort of inadvertently uh, had me super curious about the process of internalized oppression before I had that language or that cultural vocabulary to be able to name some of what I was observing. Uh, and then on my mom's side of things, um, so she was a visual artist. Almost all the women in my family are painters uh, and a gardener. And so for one, I was actually completely disinterested in making visual art for my entire life up through maybe last year, actually, because I was kind of pressured to paint and to go to galleries and to be in the art world when I was little. And so my resistance or rebellion was like, oh, art, that's so blasé, because I was kind of, you know, taking it for granted as a kid. Uh, but her uh, encouraging me to grow food since I was little has actually been so profound in terms of having a connectedness to the earth and seeing how life-saving that groundedness can be, uh, that it's even informed the method of the freedom school that I, you know, have subsequently created as an adult. Our tagline is pulling weeds and planting seeds. Um, so I would say that their lessons um, were really kind of inadvertently instructive for me, but I, again, don't really recall uh, super explicit verbalization of some expectation that I do one thing or another. Okay. One, you seem like a unicorn of an Indian person. And I mean that in the best way possible. Uh, totally mean that as a compliment. Thank you. One, the, other, the other thing I wonder is when I hear you talk, I, I kind of wonder, I'm like, wow, like, what is it about you that made you so self-aware at such a young age? Because that seems to me unusually self-aware. I, I can think about the things that I was thinking about when I was that age. It was like, oh, Cindy Crawford looks really hot on this Pepsi commercial. These are, the, these are my primary concerns mm -hmm, when I was mm -hmm. that age. So I wonder, what is it about you that uh, you think allowed for that level of self-awareness? And also, uh, what about siblings? Do you have, mm. do you have any and, and what are their lives like? Right. Uh, you know, I think it could have been in part that, uh, you know, my mother was not super conformist by any stretch of the imagination. Um, you know, like there was definitely a fair share of, you know, corporate media in the household. Like we watched a good Fresh Prince of Bel-Air for sure. So there was like a little bit of corporate media influence to be sure. And yet, uh, she was, you know, in the sort of hip parlance of today, what folks would call a maker, you know, she made, whether it was her own wine from grapes that she grew or stained glass, or, you know, we quilted, we sewed, um, she painted, we grew food. And so I would say that that was instrumental to be sure in my having a very sort of active imagination and knowing that I was capable of creating because I just saw that modeled for me uh, within our family. And so, you know, she, for example, and this is really significant for me to name out loud, I never saw my mother wear makeup one day in her entire life. And so just to be able to name, you know, all that time and energy that she was not spending on, say, body modification or things that are so normalized or naturalized in other spaces, then I was able to see her modeling, you know, us cooking together. And uh, in so many other ways, it's like there was space and there was silence for me to be able to develop that critical self-reflexivity. I don't want to universalize unduly and, you know, say something about the presumed inevitability of people having access to that if there is spaciousness and silence. 
Although, you know, I mean, certainly looking back now um, in this frenetic moment of social media inundation and the like that we're in where, you know, it's hard to find a space in public where you're not being bombarded with screens. You know, I have infinite gratitude for just the silence um, that I experienced for so many years when I was younger to be able to have independent thoughts, right? So I would say that that for sure was probably a contributing variable. And I do have a couple of siblings, an older brother uh, and a younger sister. And I would say that so my uh, sister works in a library at Stanford. My brother is an economist. Uh, and I would say that we're all pretty unapologetically nerdy. And so we definitely, you know, had a lot of books in our home growing up, um, the three of us, not my parents, actually, which is somewhat interesting to reflect on. Uh, but I would say that my brother's sort of upbringing took a bit of a different course in that he's 10 years older than me. And he, aside from a couple of stints in Oklahoma, was born and raised in Orange County and has lived there his entire life. So he didn't have access to the kind of globalized awareness that my sister and I had moving around so much as children. Um, so that, of course, inevitably informed who we've become as adults. Mm -hmm. So I, I remember every now and then the thought of going back to India would cross my parents' minds. I was like, if you do that to us, we're going to abandon you guys and run away from home. <laughs> Because I, I saw kids who did that. I, I saw people who lived in Canada and I, I never forgot it. It was a friend that I grew up with and his parents moved him to India and he actually ran away from home and they never found him, mm -hmm. sadly, mm. uh, when they moved to India because they left Canada and he really didn't want to go. Mm. I wonder for you, what was the the culture shock or if was there any when you go from sort of Orange County to uh you know, Sugarland, then to India, particularly in high school, when that is such a formative period of your life, you know, if, if you've kind of been indoctrinated into an American education system, to me, that would be incredibly disruptive. So I, I wonder what the experience was like for you. You know, Texas was so much more disruptive than India. I'm surprised. <laughs> let's be real. I'm sure you can imagine a whole lot of what well, I'm putting down on that. Years in Texas, so yeah, I know. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and so it was, and this sounds so cliched, but like more of a homecoming. And so what I would share was... Uh, Actually, so when I was in elementary school in California, some of my recollections of school were such that, you know, I feel like, and this could totally be a projection, but I was surrounded by other kids that were so sincerely passionate about learning. And then when I transitioned to Texas for middle school, all of a sudden, it was like my peer group was totally hypersexualized. There was so much peer pressure to care about clothes and body modification and all of this. And I was just like, what kind of Twilight Zone is this? And then when I got to India, you know, I, this was a pretty um, sort of extraordinary, to put it mildly, learning experience I was able to have. So I was actually at the American Embassy School there for two years. And so the high school was comprised of about 140 students from over 80 different nation states. And many of them were the children of the diplomats and the ambassadors that were stationed in the capital at the time. So this was during the third civil war with Pakistan. Um, this is also during the dissolution of the former nation state of Yugoslavia. And so it was a 
highly politicized context that was also just miraculously intelligent. And so for me, it was such a breath of fresh air to be around this peer group of kids that were 14, 15, 16 year old, just like me, that were, I mean, kicking my ass in terms of an understanding of geopolitics, right? Being this American kid that was like, what are you talking about US imperialism? What do you mean my country has destroyed your country? You know, to be able to, at that age, have to take seriously my positionality as a US citizen within a broader context politically, um, you know, understanding, say, the carbon footprint of my dad's career, uh, or understanding, you know, basically right once we got back to California, when the September 11th, 2001 attacks on the World Trade Center took place, and then the US subsequently, right, destroyed Afghanistan, um, really having an understanding of the personal being political in a way that I might not have otherwise. Um, so it was, I mean, just one of the most precious experiences of my life being able to go from Texas to India and to be able to experience those couple of years there. Yeah, I will just cherish that um, for the entirety of my life, I'm sure. Wow. So uh, you're surrounded by kids of probably uh, people who I assume are incredibly powerful and influential around the world. Mm-hmm. And what I wonder is what misperceptions do you think that people who don't interact with people like that have about people like that? Mm, what a good question. Uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly in the sense that, um, you know, just to keep it real, I feel like sort of, you know, developing compassion for the 1% is an effort that receives disproportionate <laughs> focus compared to other things that might yeah. be more ethical in this moment in time. So that's right. not particularly my project, not that it's not important, but again, there's already so much yeah. disproportionate focus on that. And so, I mean, of course, you know, I mean, folks, we all have feelings for the most part, the last time I checked. And so, of course, that's to be anticipated uh, you know, I suppose that, um, having a little insight into that world, there is, you know, of course, so much sort of emotional turmoil and anguish among folks that are super privileged, uh, including in terms of their, you know, sort of class status or, you know, geopolitically in terms of the connections they have in terms of, you know, diplomatic immunity, you know, that came up when I was there, like it is still on the daily in this world. And so, you know, that might be something that say some folks without that kind of privilege may not necessarily have as visceral of an understanding of just um, how privilege can profoundly fuck you up, right? People that, you know, in some ways, especially if we're talking about the class privilege elements, um, of course, you might feel this deep inquiry around whether or not you uh, deserve what it is you've been given if you've been given so much, you know, with a silver spoon in your life. That's, you know, kind of existential angst is par for the course of, you know, first world problems for so many people, you know, and so that's, you know, there's some sort of finer frequencies of that that I feel like um, quite often, frankly, maybe those people um, with that lived experience of that privilege might not realize is the extent to which their privilege actually suffocates them 
from being able to tap into a more, um, and this might sound again somewhat trite, but authentic experience, embodied experience of being in the world um, that could then actually allow access to a more real uh, embodied experience of connection with other people outside of them. You know, so that's one thing that I've certainly observed in some of those spaces. Um, although also, you know, I mean, say some of those kids in those spaces were say, you know, maybe uh, one of my buddies, Kat Lego, whose father was, you know, an ANC representative from South Africa in Japan. So it's not, you know, to be sort of to paint with broad brush stroke a sort of homogenous portrait of the people that were in that space. I mean, yeah, there were the kids whose parents worked for AID and the like. Uh, and, you know, there was also a wider range of experiences that were represented too. Wow. Wow. So what did you do when you left high school? And how did that lead to where you're at now? I went uh, to undergrad at Cal State Fullerton in Orange County and double majored in poli-sci and women's studies and minored in philosophy. Uh, And then more or less, you know, taking off maybe half a year, a year here and there, uh, went through a few graduate programs. uh, And it was not so much because I was ever, say, committed to the idea of being a professor, but if I could get fellowships to be able to get paid to continue learning, I knew that that would really increase the likelihood that whatever I devoted my life to could hopefully be um, a little bit more effective as a part of engaging this pursuit of wanting to bring about um, as vast of a positive societal transformation in my life as I could. Uh, And so, yeah, I was in school for a very, very long time. And organizing in community off campus and on campus um, in all of those contexts. Uh, And then upon finishing my last grad program, which is uh, at the University of Hawaii, I left in 2014, traveled for a while, accepted a position at a university in San Francisco for a little less than a year um, before leaving to jump into growing this totally grassroots educational project full time. Monday morning, 10 a.m., I'm making a Facebook graphic. 11 a.m., I am still making a Facebook graphic. 11.59 a.m., I am still making the graphic. 12.19 p.m., I finish making the mediocre graphic. Then from 12.21 p.m. to 7.01 p.m., I am frustratingly resizing said mediocre graphic for social media. 7.02 p.m., I am finally done. I post my mediocre graphic and I cry a little bit and I wonder, is there a better way? Tuesday morning, 10 a.m., I send a note to Serini asking for the name of all of his graphic people. 10.07 a.m., Serini sends me a note back and says, Hey, Lisa, I use Delazine for $350 a month, and I get unlimited graphic design that includes graphic design, branding, website design, animation, and a ton more with a dedicated senior designer. And they nailed our brand on the very first attempt, and they have blazing fast turnaround times. 
10.30 a.m. I wonder why Serini has all the answers and quickly sign up for Delazine. 11 a.m. I tell Delazine what I need and I get on with my day. 11.05 a.m. I am doing my day and loving Delazine and Serini. And right now, if you go to Delazine.com slash unmistakable and use the coupon code unmistakable, you get 30% off your first month. So that's Delazine.com slash unmistakable. And don't forget to use the coupon code unmistakable so you get Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. You're 30% off your first month. Mm, wow. 
Okay. So <clears throat> you've done a lot of stuff around organizing people. Uh, and it sounds like really starting movements and getting people to take action on an idea. What are the foundations that lead to that? And what mm-hmm. prevents that from happening? And, and part of what makes me ask this question is uh, I, when David Letterman interviewed Barack Obama, something really struck me when Barack Obama said, we have some of the lowest voting rates of any democracy on the planet. And it made me think, well, wow, you know, we're, how much do we, we talk and how little do we act? And, and given your background, I wonder how you connect those two things. Like, how do you bridge that gap between talking and action is really the question. Mm, Right. It's so very important. Um, So for one, I would invoke the title of this film that was made about the life of the people's historian Howard Zinn. It's titled You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train. I bring that up first and foremost to share that we are always already making a difference, right? Even you and I having this dialogue right now, inhaling oxygen, exhaling carbon, right? We're enacting a carbon footprint upon the earth, even by virtue of this very conversation. There is no neutral on that front. And so to me, when people ask the question about making a difference, Um, That to me is a bit of a naive or a sort of misguided question in the sense that you're always, you know, they said, right, drinking and then throwing away a plastic water bottle or whatever it might be. We're making differences all the time. So rather to me, uh, the question is, right, what kind of legacy are we trying to leave for our future generations and for the earth? And so it's not so much about, you know, wondering, oh, will I someday be able to affect some kind of change, but to really take a hard unwavering look at what we are already complicit in. And then on that front, you know, there's so many different theories related to activation and agitation and galvanizing folks. Some of the things that I try to emphasize in working with folks, especially predominantly in the U.S., is... Um, you know, first off, really deepening our understanding of what has prevented us from engaging in action to begin with. So for a lot of people, maybe that might be fear. It could involve ridicule, right? It could involve, you know, anticipated backlash or persecution, which is real, especially when you're really rocking the boat or shaking things up. That's a very reasonable concern. Uh, And when we get out on the table, Um, What, again, has already been someone's relationship with the changes they have and haven't made, the decisions that they have and haven't made in their lives, Um, we can move forward in a way that's informed by those deeply seated patterns. And so often they're intergenerational, right? So what are the habits that we've seen even within our families in terms of, right, maybe unrequited dreams, Um, Or maybe people just kind of towing the party line and then presuming in their retirement they can volunteer. And that's how you are a sort of productive or contributing member to society. Um, Or have you seen someone maybe in your family with vulnerability really try to go all out to fulfill some sincere passion that they have? And then did you see them essentially get sort of censored for that? And if so, how has that informed Um, your personal relationship with that risk-taking and with that right embodiment of integrity. So I would first off just start off reminding folks, you know, you're always already doing a thing. What indeed is that thing? And what's the set of sort of patterns or habits that's informed why you're doing what you're doing now, especially if it diverges from a vision that you hold of something otherwise? Mm, Wow. 
So what are the, the sort of foundational values and premises on which uh, this grassroots educational movement is founded on? I'll tell you what it was that actually got me in, in terms of wanting to say yes to your story was the fact that uh, if you've heard any unmistakable creative interview, you know that I am very, very interested in how we change education. So I, I wonder, particularly because of the fact that I think Indians in general are raised with a very set narrative on education which is, you know, go to the most prestigious school that you can and everything else will follow from that. So I wonder, you know, one, what are your thoughts on our current educational system and what are the, the things that you're trying to change by doing this? Absolutely. Uh, well, you know, so far as higher education goes, academia has been for decades now so corporatized, right? Neoliberal, it's increasingly, right, reliant upon contingent labor. So keeping your workforce vulnerable or precarious, which decreases the likelihood that quality education is going to be uh, engaged, let alone that a workforce is actually going to be healthy enough to be able to move forward sustainably so no shortage of problems that have been very um, brilliantly analyzed by folks within the dominant system. Uh, and so those are all concerns, if you ask me. Another major concern um, for me that doesn't get talked about as much is um, the overwhelming, just to make it plain, mediocrity within dominant educational institutions in the U.S., um, that fronts as intelligence. So some of what I mean by that is, uh, you know, if we want to get smarter, we've got to extend our lit review. And part of what I mean by that is specifically um, so much of the curricula, certainly in the humanities and in the social sciences, in academia in the U.S. today is still so embarrassingly Eurocentric and heteropatriarchal. Um, and I don't just mean a lot of white male teachers. Sure, that's a thing. And I'm talking about, so even if the mouthpieces of those ideas are brown or they're black or whomever's being tokenized for that month, sort of diversity and inclusion optics. Uh, and so, you know, it's like that same old gatekeeping and censorship um, that fronts as intelligence within the ivory tower. But the thing is, in this moment in time, right, so just remembering our context, this is a moment of omnicide, the killing of all the things, um, we're being called to be smarter than that. Uh, and so it's really concerning to me when the brilliance of women, of people of color, of Native folks, of folks from the global South, is not a part of the core curricula, because that actually prohibits our capacity to be smarter. Um, and, you know, that's why, so for example, within Liberation Spring, this grassroots adult freedom school that I founded, uh, so for one, we're anti-disciplinary. So we learn some of the history of the way that knowledge production has become so balkanized within silos in the academy and how that's actually an impediment to our learning. Um, so we take a more holistic approach to inquiry and to observation that includes inc essentially encouraging curiosity that's sort of at the intersection of the best of whether it's intellectual or, or emotional or somatic practices to the point that then participants can blur those sort of artificial boundaries between those categories. Um, so also, as opposed to right, just perpetuating this Cartesian dualism, like intelligence is a thing in your head that's disembodied that folks critique, uh, and yet that doesn't mean that we've been operationalizing, moving beyond that critique 
um, within, again, these dominant institutions and within the canon as it currently stands. So that's a little bit of the alternative that we're creating. And one of the major uh, aspects of that that's so transformative for so many participants, as I have observed, is uh, you know, when, say, women and people of color and Native folks and other oppressed people enter into the academy, there can be this disproportionate focus on what's gotten called the imposter syndrome. Uh, like, you know, <laughs> and it's so problematic, the institution sort of condescendingly being like, oh, you poor thing, of course, you'd be intimidated playing with the big boys now that you've made it. Uh, and that entire narrative is totally co-opted in the service of oppression. Um, it's totally a hustle because that storytelling presumes that the institutions are legitimate. Uh, and so it's important for me as an educator to provide a counter narrative to that diversion by turning the critique to the institutions as imposters um, and to inviting people to be smarter than that, essentially. Again, expanding the lit review if you want to <laughs> pretend that you know what you're talking about. It can't just be, you know the same 12 white boys whose curricula fronts as economics and the vast majority of economics departments when people aren't even talking about Islamic economics or Aloha Aina or indigenous economics and then acting like they're having a smart dialogue, right? Wow. Uh, I know from, from reading your bio that you've also went and spoken at a lot of, of the very institutions that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what is the, the response to your message from them and what, what has to happen to see change, uh, in sort of our our standard and dominant institutions? Like, is it, from what I understand from talking to a lot of people, it seems like the change is not going to come from within the system. Um, that is such a prescient observation if you ask me. And that frankly is part of why in this moment of intersecting crises that we're currently in, I've chosen very strategically to leverage my limited time and energy in my life to building alternatives outside of those institutions. Uh, and, you know, part of, for me, the strategy that I'm employing involves Uh, supporting folks really unlocking the brilliant potential and capacity that they have so that that unto itself can be an inspiration to continue to grow this kind of paradigm. Um, So as opposed to kind of combatively um, devoting so many lifetimes, like I see so many loved ones of mine doing that are academics within dominant institutions Um, trying to bring about change at a glacial pace, um, meeting such resistance um, within those institutions. You know, I've got the greatest respect for them and the work that they're trying to do. Yet again, for me, uh, especially with the moment that we're in where so many folks are aware of how higher education in the U.S. is such an embarrassing failure. I mean, even if you're just trying to write compete as a nation state, in a globalized economy and you see, hey, China, India, other people take education seriously. Like, what's the long-term vision and strategy of where the society is going to be ending up in 10 or 20 years if we've still so thoroughly divested from creating intelligence collectively? Uh, I've really just so sincerely encouraged many folks to roll with that momentum to create alternatives outside of that dominant institution. Because so many folks are so receptive to that right now um, and are not just trying to sort of 
hit their head up against a closed door um, for the rest of their career. But in this moment where, again, you know, there's funding, there's support, there's energy, there are so many people that are sincerely yearning to learn in ways that are more rigorous and that don't just perpetuate the worst of the kind of censorship or gatekeeping of the canon itself, um, rolling with that momentum. Um, so just being clear about, you know, not say imbuing or investing more of a yearning for external legitimacy into your institutional affiliation. I know that hooks a lot of people that might have, say, self-confidence or self-esteem issues, really wanting that title. Um, but just having that reminder of the context that we're in to then be able to ground us in actually making more effective change right now. Hmm. Um, so we've been talking about adults and that's kind of what you've alluded to, but a lot of parents are listening to this. What would you tell them? Mm. Uh, you know, specifically around, so are you imagining maybe that have kids that could be gearing up to go to college right now or within yeah, the context? or even, <laughs> even prior to college, you know, what would you tell them about educating their children? Mm. Uh, to trust their instinct and their intuition to the greatest capacity that they are in touch with it, um, to not just toe the party line. Again, here, when it comes to that institutional legitimacy, like going to the so-called best schools and the like, um, really asking back to basics some questions like, what is the relationship with the earth, for example, that your child is going to be receiving at whatever institution that you put them in if you are sending them to a more traditional school. So for example, I really love that, uh, you know, I've especially in the past couple of years, um, taken a significant amount of time and energy to visit throughout the world a few of the most iconoclastic and tremendous examples of educational institutions I've ever heard of and been able to research over the years. And one of the things that I've seen consistently at all of them uh, is the right idea of, um, like is increasing in popularity in the U.S., um, the earth being the classroom of the future. And so reminding folks that, um, you know, it's not all about your kids being app developers and being savvy, just being deftly sort of synced up into uh, this sort of matrix of new social media and technologies that were saturated in that's going to give them a leg up in the future. Um, you know, nothing like having some healthy techno skepticism on that front and remembering that. Um, their iPad doesn't mean much if they don't have access to clean drinking water. So I want the parents that are listening to remember, I know that you know that clean drinking water isn't optional, but the iPad is optional. Um, and the clean drinking water is actually not a given for us and for our future generations, like y'all's kids' generations right now, not just if you're at Standing Rock, not just if you're in Flint. Um, and so let's just at minimum ensure that those basics are fulfilled before we try to get fancier. <laughs> so what is right, the sort of ecological competency um, that your children are or are not receiving within the institutions that they're a part of so that they can be responsible stewards of our planet moving forward? Because that's non-negotiable if we're going to continue as a species, right? Yeah. 
I had to comment on the fact that you said y'all. <laughs> it looks like the Texas. The Texas has not left you entirely. I appreciate you seeing that. Thank you. <laughs> it's true. Uh, so I love this. So uh, now, when somebody comes through your program or somebody goes through your curriculum, what is it like? What is the structure for for an adult who comes to Liberation Spring? Like, what is what? What's the experience? We have group seasonal classes. Right now, they're offered online, so 12 weeks long. That's part of that ecological consciousness um, is actually consistently with the Earth's seasons, um, allowing people to readjust to that approach to time or to temporality. Um, So there are two primary ways that folks experience the project, either through those group seasonal classes or through essentially one-on-one independent studies that are community-based. So it's almost like, say, we're in the academy and a student comes through and works with a professor, um, maybe writing a paper as a part of an independent study, but sometimes those might just, say, get thrown away at the end of the semester when the student gets a grade. Um, Instead of that, the kinds of independent studies that we do could almost be understood as consulting in some spaces. are, you know, maybe a student is working on building an intentional community and they want to ensure that it is as inclusive as possible, or other participants come through and they're building activist strategies and they want to make sure that they're as effective as possible and don't get caught up in the same old, same old trappings that have sort of stymied so many people's really wonderful visions and wishes in the past, but that maybe just didn't have the training of a political scientist like myself that specifically studied um, liberators to be able to inform uh, their work. And so one of the things that I invite folks to do either in the classes or in the one-on-one work is to make their impact as good as their intention, if not better. Uh, Because so often when folks talk about good intentions, it almost sounds like an alibi. And the thing is, we can do better than that. So if folks do have good intentions, Let's sync them up with right the sort of support um, and invitations to growth and to expand our awareness so that their impact can be commensurate with those great intentions. So that's part of the core gist of the work that I do with people. Mm, wow. So you know, we've kind of uh, looked at this from a, a number of different angles. We've talked about education. We've talked about politics. We've talked about economics. And yeah, I wonder, based on some of the things that you've told me, how you uh, have defined success in your own life and how you define fulfillment in your own life and how you define meaning based on sort of the perspective that you've gotten from all of this. Mm. Uh, thank you for that question. You know, success for me looks like uh, every day being able to wake up and fulfillment also for me personally uh, and know that I'm making my ancestors proud uh, and that I am putting every ounce of my being into this world uh, being in a better place when I leave it than when I came into it, Um, which is just good old-fashioned stewardship. We have so many different ancestral traditions to draw upon that remind us of that. Um, So also supporting other people, being able to stay focused with that presence and with that groundedness. Uh, And so for me, uh, I mean, my life is overflowing with meaning on a regular basis because it's such an honor to be able to show up to do this miraculous work every day. Uh, And so, you know, whether it is seeing participants 
that are just unlearning propaganda so rigorously that then they have so much more time and energy and vitality to be able to nourish what they actually came here to do with their lives, um, or just seeing the power of, you know, within our classes on a weekly basis, on a seasonal basis, seeing folks practicing honesty, which is so radical in this moment where we're swirling in so much distortion and illusion. I mean, that's what success feels like. Um, you know, reviving this public intellectualism that was a thing in the U.S. prior to the moment in time that we've gotten sucked up into in the past few decades. Uh, so people that, you know, they do want to have difficult dialogues with their neighbors about what's going on in their communities. Um, they do want to be responsible in cleaning up the messes that humanity has made, especially in the first world in the U.S. You know, they're not trying to bypass. They're not trying to make excuses. Um, seeing them actually trying that, seeing the sparkle returning to participants' eyes who are practicing being more present. They're building space for heterogeneity in their organizations and in the communities that they're nourishing. Um, they're fortified against divisiveness. They've refined their solidarity skills. They don't as easily get caught up in the sort of divide and conquer mentality, but they can hold space for being fiercely accountable to their own and each other's potential. I mean, that's the success that we're collectively stewarding um, every day within the project. And it's, you know, I could not be more serious when I say it is absolutely miraculous to bear witness to. How do you think about money now? You know, uh, it's not a thing that, and this might sound really um, privileged, but that concerns me or that I think about very often within my own life. And, you know, goddess knows that's not because I'm independently wealthy or have, you know, spousal or familial support or anything like that. Um, it's more so for me, actually, as a sort of faith-based practice um, and taking it back to some of our ancestral traditions, um, you know, as especially as an as an educator, this work to me is sacred. And I do know, um, and I'm using the word know intentionally as opposed to believe, that my needs will be provided for if I do the work on the daily of being as grounded in my vacation and in my calling as I have been, because I have seen it every single day of my life so far, that when we true to our actual purpose even when it's terrifying, uh, that will be taken care of. And, you know, I think that's in part, uh, you know, for me, not just the kind of very privileged, you know, do what you love, um, but uh, mentality that I especially so deeply engendered when, you know, almost 11 years ago, my mother very unexpectedly passed away. And so, you know, at that time, when I was in my early 20s, I felt like I had as decent of a grasp of and was as, you know, realistically at peace with my own mortality as someone could be in their early 20s that had never experienced, you know, a significant life-threatening illness or injury or anything such as that. But really having to confront other people's mortality in that significant of a way and at that young of an age, I was in my first semester of grad school when that happened, um, really woke me up to that reminder that tomorrow is not a given for any of us. 
Um, and so, you know, also part of the work that we do as an anti-capitalist organization is uh, supporting folks definancializing their imaginations. Um, because, yeah, for some folks, you know, if they have no financial literacy, get that financial literacy to be sure. So keeping it contextual, you know, there's a time and a place for real for us to talk about alternatives to capitalism, learning that history and beautiful examples that exist right now. But for me personally, uh, money is not even close to my primary focus in the sense that living my life to the fullest, honoring that, you know, every day is not a given, that it is truly a miracle for us to be able to wake up one more day um, informs my doing what I feel called to do with as much vibrance and passion and joy as I can in that day. Um, and knowing that I'll be taken care of. I don't have to be loaded when you're fulfilled spiritually. You don't need to be loaded. Um, but I will have my needs met. And that is absolutely good enough for me. Mm, wow. Wow. Uh, well, you have packed this with uh, a lot of very, very thought-provoking insights, which, left, which has left me with more questions than answers. But that's a good thing. Uh, mm -hmm. So I want to finish with my final question, uh, which I'm sure you've heard me ask. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? You know, for me, it's in part um, how much they've healed their imagination from this poisonous mediocrity of the dominant society. Uh, you know, so some folks might call that deprogramming from the Matrix, ripping off of that epic cinematic rendition of Plato's allegory of the cave, you know, remembering what's come before, uh, and then creating alternatives from that detoxified place of humility. Um, because if we haven't done that work of decolonizing our minds, we're more likely to just perpetuate that socialization that we might have internalized. Uh, so I'd say people are unmistakable in part to the extent that they've healed their imaginations. Wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, this has been truly amazing. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you and everything that you're up to? Oh, thank you so much. It's an honor. Uh, liberationspring.com and Liberation Spring on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube, Libspring on Twitter. And they can also find our podcast, which is called Feral Visions on iTunes, on SoundCloud and on YouTube. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating? inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.